Hey everyone, this is Zach with EM Weekly. I am joined by David Reedman, uh, who is a expert, uh, a super knowledgeable, uh, former emergency management professional, current uh, technology researcher, uh, and I guess security expert using AI. Uh, and we're gonna be discussing school safety, something that is obviously extremely important to me, extremely important to a lot of emergency managers. Uh, welcome, David, and thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, Zach. All right. So first and foremost, uh, I found you because of your posts on various social media talking about the uh, school safety database, uh, the school shooting database. Uh, it's something that I've used um, and shared with fellow you know, public safety personnel, uh, school safety personnel, because uh, I think it's it captures a lot of incidents that people don't necessarily think of when they're thinking of school shootings that, you know, we, we see the, the horrific, huge mass casualty events where there's, you know, t 10 plus kids that are, that are killed. Uh, and we neglect the daily just grind of school shootings in this country. So if you maybe want to just sort of introduce your background, how you sort of got into that, why you sort of built this, this database and, you know, how it's sort of influenced what you've done in your life. Yeah, definitely. So my emergency management career started just a couple of days after Katrina. I was a FEMA reservist when there was a massive oh, wow. hire of volunteer firefighters. Yeah. Um, and I ended up down in New Orleans for a couple of months. And from there, uh, I continued working as a FEMA reservist, transitioned into federal consulting. I've worked about every directorate across FEMA. Um, and that brought me to the Naval Postgraduate School in 2014, where I completed the master's program at yeah. the Center for Homeland Defense and Security. Great program. And I was really interested at that point in infrastructure protection. I wrote my master's thesis uh, specifically about infrastructure protection, both natural and uh, man-made threats. And a couple of years later, uh, there was a think tank program at the Center for Homeland Defense and Security that was focused on emerging homeland security issues. And I was part of uh, the inaugural cohort. And during that course, the Parkland shooting happened. Wow. And we had been talking about all of these future and evolving threats across the homeland, but we'd never talked about school shootings. It wasn't something that I had heard in any context, in any emergency management or homeland security discussion. And working with the classmate, uh, we were interested in creating a threat assessment tool uh, but after coming up with a first iteration, we wanted to check it against prior incidents. And that's when we found that there was really no data about school yeah. shootings. If you wanted to find out how many happened in 2017, and this was 2018, that information was not readily available, much less how many deliberate attacks there were, why they happened, where they happened, what time, um, who the shooter was, how they related to the school, uh, what happened in the immediate aftermath of the incident, none of this information was readily available. So we started creating the first version of this database in the summer of 2018. Um, it became a class project that was then a center project. Um, and then after a couple of years, as uh, the, the support kind of ran out there because it was so different from the Homeland Security mission, yeah. I decided to just continue this project on my own. Um, and now, you know, almost six years later, it's information about more than 2,500 different shootings at schools back to 1966. Yeah. And you're pulling from, I mean, you're basically scraping for any piece of information you can find, right? So one of the issues, so a lot of us in the emergency management field hang our hats on the fact that, you know, the FBI and Secret Service puts out their annual reports and it shows there's like you know, two to five, you know, uh, mass shooting events at schools. And we're like, cool, we don't have to worry about it. Um, what have you found in your research that sort of shows like this is like a gross misunder, uh, misunderestimate uh, as well as just it's not helping us actually improve safety? Yeah, I mean, to think of it from the emergency management perspective, the way that the government reports school shootings is if you said, we're gonna look at floods across the whole country, <clears throat> but only if there's more than 10 feet of water. Yeah. And 10 feet of water might be a big deal in some cities, but one foot of water 
might be a big deal in other cities. Yeah. So the, the government has created a benchmark that there need to be four people killed by somebody that's directly related to the school uh, for something to be a school shooting. And what that means is that Sandy Hook was not a school shooting because that shooter didn't have a direct relation to the school. Last year, a sniper with six different rifles and a thousand rounds, he fired 300 shots at the Edmund Burke School in Washington, D.C. at dismissal. But he had terrible aim. He didn't kill anyone. Yeah. Um, there was one police officer that nearly died, but he was saved by a procedure at GWU Hospital that had never been attempted before. Wow. And so because nobody died at that school and because the person wasn't related to the school and they're firing from a fifth story apartment across from the school, they weren't on school property. They didn't have a relation. Nobody died. It's like that incident never existed. Yeah. But when, when we think about understanding a problem, you don't want to just look at the Katrinas and Northridges. You want to look at every single disaster that you can because you understand the impacts on the community, the frequency, the um, different variations of how uh, multiple hazards might interact with each other. And that's the approach I've taken to quantifying gun violence at schools is as much data as possible, as many incidents as guns fired as possible. And each one of them can provide different pieces of information. And then when you look at all of them in aggregate, you have really powerful findings that you would never see otherwise. We'll be right back after this quick break for ads. The L3 Harris Extreme 400P radio solves problems and is specifically designed for emergency services. How do we know? We field tested it with medical, urban search and rescue and collapse and confined structures. This radio is amazingly tough. Check out the L3 Harris Extreme 400P radio at L3Harris.com right now. How do you spell Doberman Emergency Management? EOP, OEP, HVA, HMP, Thyra, TTX, Drone, PDA. Whenever you need an expert, Doberman Emergency Management field experts are there for support. Contact an expert at DobermanEMG.com today. And I guess like one of the things that I've sort of struggled with is, you know, uh, I worked for a trans, uh, research center that focused on transportation research. And one of the hardest things that I did was like this technology transfer process, right? Like we take, we come up with the data, we have all this information. How do we get it into the hands of the people that need it in a way that they understand the government? Like I said, those two reports that typically all of us are reviewing and sort of using as our, our benchmark, um, you know, have this information in a way that's easily accessible. So it's, it's, cool, it's right here and I can understand it. How does your database like help with that process of getting this information into emergency management hands and how should emergency managers use this in their decision-making process and their planning process and, and potentially, you know, uh, as they're thinking about, you know, building annexes and exercises and stuff? Yeah, so this information, the way that it's structured is very simple for a non-database expert to, to use and interact with. And you did that so, on purpose, I'm assuming, right? Yeah, so on the website, on k12ssdb.org, there's the full research methodology. Yeah, And that explains one of the, the biggest differences with this from other information sources is that beyond indiscriminate attacks, I'm capturing all of these different types of shootings at schools. So domestics, fights that escalate, suicides, shootings related to illegal activity. And every one of those 16 different situations is categorized. And so you can sort if you only want to see mass fatality indiscriminate attacks, <clears throat> or you can sort by you know only looking at suicides. And when you see the frequency of these 16 different situations, you realize that schools actually need plans for 16 different scenarios. Yeah. Because an attack by an indiscriminate shooter shouldn't have the same response as a student or teacher who commits suicide in the bathroom. And if you use that mass attack shooting on that suicide, then you end up traumatizing and disrupting every single student, parent, staff member, that entire community's day. And I think that's what we're seeing when you're Right now, there's only planning for one scenario yeah. and really one imagined scenario. But looking more broadly, 
you see that you need a plan that has multiple annexes. You need to plan for an incident inside versus outside. You need to plan for an incident at arrival, during class, during lunch, at dismissal, during after-school activities. And from you know the responses, there have been 19 different shootings so far this fall at high school football games. Yeah, And it's clear in the aftermath of those that nobody had a plan, nobody did any training, and there had never been a multi-agency exercise for a shooting at any of these football games. Yeah, it's a super scary scenario. Uh, and actually, I've brought it up. I've used your information recently with uh, the school training that I went to as well as with my district because, you know, uh, again, I'm a, I'm a huge advocate, like obviously prevention over response, right? Like we always want to prevent over response. Uh, and a lot of the solutions that people propose are securing the building, you know, adding more infrastructure to sort of harden the building. Um, but that does absolutely nothing when it's an event that is off campus or in a sports facility, right? You spend all this money, maybe you build the perfect school, no one gets in there. But when you start to recognize, especially by going through your database, you realize, wow, we have, we've missed the parking lots. We've missed the adjacent streets. And frankly, I mean, it could be several streets away, like uh, in, uh, you know, there's been video of, you know, gunshots that occur blocks away, but people hear it and it causes an overreaction or, you know, people just get scared. They think it's right there and people get injured just trying to react to something that isn't even really an active threat to them. Um, And so I find it super, super useful with the football games has been probably the the scariest thing to me. We we as a, a district are have been addressing sort of unsportsmanlike conduct that's been occurring at games. And, you know, there's been fights, there's been, uh, in, in our state, we've had, you know, teams that are throwing out, you know, racial slurs at other teams and we have this powder keg. And when I look at the stadiums and I, we, I mean, we don't really have stadiums. It's Vermont. We're not a huge football state, but we have, you know, football fields and stands, I, uh, I just, I'm like, I don't even know how I would begin to secure something like this. Uh, and you know, I think for a lot of people, they don't think about it because they don't see it as a threat, but every day you're posting essentially almost every day, a new shooting that's occurred in this. Have you seen this as like a, a new trend or is this something that we just have never captured before? No, it's a continuation of a trend. It's just become far more frequent in the last couple of years. Uh, There was a a story I worked on for ESPN last year where we looked at the last 10 years of school shootings um, at sporting events. And really, it's post-2019, the numbers have increased and post-pandemic, the numbers of shootings at games have have really increased. But I think an example that that really kind of speaks to where emergency management is missing from planning for shootings at schools and shootings at sporting events Um, is in Choctaw, Oklahoma, three weeks ago, there was a shooting in the stands during the game. And then a couple seconds later, there was another volley of gunfire. And it turned out that was an off-duty officer shooting at somebody who he thought was the shooter, but that was just a bystander. And once there were two volleys of gunfire, everybody in the stadium thought there was an active shooter attack. And people were jumping out of the bleachers. Uh, Two girls had severe injuries from jumping uh, from high parts of the bleachers. And the entire crowd, you know, left. Um, People were jumping over the fences. People were stampeding. And what was really interesting is in the aftermath, there were a lot of young kids there, uh, like elementary school and middle school kids, and they were separated from their parents. They ended up at the houses of neighbors around the school. And there was an interview with a retired teacher at that school. And she said that a stream of kids just kept coming to her house and she just kept bringing them inside. And that made me think, in emergency management, when Craig Fugate was administrator of FEMA, he said that responders cannot do everything. Yeah, That you need the entire community to be involved. We need a whole community effort in emergency management. And why have we never involved the whole community in school safety? When there are thousands of people at a football game and they're all going to run, that has never been exercised. It was clear from the interview with the chief there. They didn't even know how many officers were at the game. 
Uh, they didn't have any plan or training for what to do during that shooting. And then people fled into the neighborhood. If we did exercises that involved that entire community, the police department, the fire department, the emergency managers, the school, the community leaders, community members, you could have a, a much better and smoother resolution to these situations because everybody would be moving in the same direction yeah. and everybody would be offering different pieces of how they could assist um, in the entire response recovery and mitigation. When we're only looking at things as response and we're looking at them as solely a law enforcement or a school problem, we're missing the best practices that we have from all these other types of emergencies that we prepare for. Yeah, and that story in particular, uh, I was trying to think of like, <laughs> if we gave people the tools to sort of understand like, hey, if something happens in your community, it's okay to like, you know, there's, there's a lot of trust that has to be built there. Being a teacher, having kids come into her space, Obviously, she's got decades probably of experience in comforting kids and and helping them to, you know, get through stressful situations. Um, but, yeah, like you're saying, if we had built into our plan, you know, we communicated with all the houses in the area saying, hey, just, you know, so you're aware if something were to occur, like there's going to be impacts in your community. You know, what capabilities do you have? Maybe you have retired fire firefighters, retired EMS personnel. Uh, retired emergency managers that are just living there or active, you know, uh, responders who just need to be notified so that they can go and, and help in a situation ahead of time, um, building, you know, cert teams and these other sort of civilian response capabilities, handing out medical equipment so the whole community is prepared for this stuff. It's not just the shooting, right? It's everything. Like you're talking about floods and stuff. We just had a, a, a huge amount of flooding in my state and we don't have any resources in the state. Like we're a small state, very rural in a lot of communities. And if you don't trust your neighbor to help you, you could be in a lot of trouble. So I think that's just so important. And and it can be hard, too, because I think as emergency managers and responders, like we want to take on that burden and we want to, like, throw tools at it. Uh, and it can be hard to delegate that to someone that we're like, well, they're maybe not trained in this. But that person didn't have to be, you know, get a high level of training. They just said to, like, be willing to open the door and take in their neighbors in a time of crisis. So that's a really, really important uh, point. And I think it's something that, you know, even I'm, as we're talking about, it, I'm like, I, I don't think I'm doing this anywhere near to the amount that I should be doing this. So uh, I'll foot stomp that. It's really, really important. Um, yeah, there's a fundamental change that's starting to occur yeah. in school safety, too, where, you know, now that it's this year is 25 years after Columbine. It's crazy. And since the school lockdown and the secure school building paradigm that was kind of created after that and after the, the aftermath of Virginia Tech, um, when really this concept of the classroom lockdown um, and this active assailant where that termino terminology didn't even exist yeah. before 2008, um, that paradigm is not working. School shootings are more frequent and more deadly since we started planning for lockdowns and this, this single attacker. And that's partly because the most of these attacks are carried out by a current or former student yeah. who's been trained in exactly what to do. They've been trained how to be a school shooter. Uh, so there's really a change you can see across some large school districts. Philadelphia just changed this year uh, pretty quietly uh, but students are no longer told that they need to lock down in classrooms. If they yeah. feel that it's appropriate to run from the school, they can do that. And as students, whether they're allowed to or not, are now taking it upon themselves to evacuate from buildings, we need to be identifying somewhere for them to go. Yeah. So it could be a church, it could be a shopping center, it could be a business, it could be neighbors' houses. Those people need to be involved in the planning process. Those people need to be involved in the notification process. Yeah. Almost every school has an automated notification system for parents or to send out emergency alerts if anything happens. Why aren't the closest churches, the closest yeah. community centers, the closest businesses all on that alert list too so that they know something's happening at the school and they can take in those students um, when they you know, rapidly evacuate rather than just having them wander around the neighborhood? Right. And it's I mean, that information sharing uh, on top of it, they can take action. 
they're going to impede the response if they're not sure what's going on. There's police cars showing up. There's fire trucks showing up. Um, yeah, that's that's really interesting. Plus the the fact the options based um, response models. So Vermont just actually legislated that now they can teach it. Most schools, I think, had been sort of teaching run hide fight to to some degree or Alice, uh, depending on the the school district. Um, but there's been a much larger emphasis on like, yeah, do not default response to lockdown. And it's easy, right? Like for a drill purpose, for a teacher who's responsible for students, like how do you exercise, run out of the building and get out of there? Um, but, uh, at the, one well, of the most, you know, that gets practiced at dismissal every day. It's true. So, <laughs> That's a good so point. I think yeah. it's, it's important. <laughs> one of, one of the, the pieces of criticism that, that I hear is people say, yeah. well, how can we possibly have students evacuate? you know, then how are we ensuring their safety? How are yeah. we keeping track of them? But students, many students of all ages get to school on their own every morning. Yeah. They're allowed to go wherever they want at lunch and they all leave to go wherever they want to. Um, as soon as the day's finished, I I lived in uh, Oahu for a number of years and elementary school kids ride the city buses to yeah. school there because they're, they're not yellow school buses. So we give children a huge amount of freedom and responsibility to take care of themselves before and after the bell. So when there is an imminent threat to their lives inside the school building, it doesn't make any sense to tell them you have to stay here so that we can keep your, our eyes on you. Yeah. Um, anytime in any place, whether it's a movie theater, a shopping mall, a subway, a casino, we tell people if you hear gunshots, get as far away as possible. Yeah. And somehow um, the momentum got created over the last two decades to tell students, no, it's actually better to sit under your desk. Yeah. And the, the, the empirical evidence now really shows that that's not true. And that's a paradigm that we have to change. And it's starting to change now. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, I, I, You've had like there's like 20 points in there that I just I'm going to like copy and paste them out and just hand them out to everyone because uh, the the point about, yes, uh, every day you're essentially doing a mass evacuation of your building as a emergency manager. Have you ever actually stood there and watched it? Um, I have. I like to sort of time stuff like uh, when I when we used to plan for evacuating our hockey rink, um, I would wait to the biggest game and then I would just stand outside and sort of see, did everyone go out the main entrance? You know, most people are going to go out the ways that they know. So as a responder, you can go to the school and start to watch. Okay. Kids know that this entrance is okay or the main entrance, right? Like they've got their alternate and they've got their main entrance. Uh, you're going to see some kids that are going to sneak out the back cause they want to go, you know, to the, the woods or whatever. And you're gonna have other kids that have the shortcut to get to the baseball field. Cause they got practice after, and you can start to build your map, the other thing that's uh, really interesting that I've sort of been trying to figure out how to take advantage of is, you know, you walk to a school and you see paths everywhere, right? So you know where like sort of the natural uh, flow is for students as they're leaving as well. You know, if you can capture that information, you know they're going to sprint this way because that's where they're going every single day. There's just there's a clear path that is driven towards this route. You know, that's probably going to be a mustering point for kids. Um, but yeah, the and then communicating with people off campus. I think a lot of places are very hesitant to share their mass notification system with people who aren't within the system because we're going to bother them with, you know, maybe not emergency information or, you know, snow day and, and stuff like that. Um, but again, like they're in your immediate vicinity. They're they're potentially a resource um, but if nothing else, they're going to be nosy. They're going to want to know what's going on. So they're going to show up if something starts happening. Fire trucks start pulling up to the school and they're across the street. They're probably going to come outside and see what's going on. You're actually helping the responders by including those folks, because if they see a message, oh, my gosh, there's an active shooter. Same thing. They're responsible. Like, I have to stay inside, protect myself. And if I see kids, I'm going to do everything I can to scoop them up and get them inside and keep them safe. So. Uh, I, all of those points are just like really, really important. I hope everyone that's listening is going to take action with this stuff. This is, this is not trivial stuff. I mean, David has done the research and he has the data. You can go look at the data. Um, speaking of which, do you want to speak to maybe the, the most recent, um, paper that you produced, uh, the academic paper that you just released? Yeah. So there was, uh, just a journal article, uh, that I wrote with James Densley 
and Jill Peterson, um, who are the creators of the Violence Project. And we've done uh, a number of different research projects together over the last couple of years. But this was kind of the first large um, empirical analysis of school shooting threats. So we took a sample from pre-pandemic, during the pandemic, and post-pandemic of threats made to schools. Um, we found a thousand different cases, and we coded them for a lot of different variables. But one of those was whether it was a real threat with intent to cause harm, um, an empty threat, or something that was clearly a joke or a hoax. And the, the findings were really surprising um, because regardless of, of what type of threat it was, whether it was real or a joke, they were almost all treated in the same way. Um, and they almost all led to felony arrests. Yeah, And that's kind of a really important planning consideration is that we talk a lot about shootings. We put a lot of resources into the shootings themselves. But when something's posted on Instagram, within seconds or minutes, somebody at that school district has to make a decision yeah. about, is this a real threat that we need to respond to, or is this a joke that we're going to uh, discredit? And if they decide that this is a real response, then it turns into essentially the same situation as if you had a shooting. Yeah, You're going to have a multi-hour lockdown. Parents and community members are going to hear about it. They're going to start flooding to the school. You have a large law enforcement presence. It's going to turn into a multi-hour incident. You're going to have a staged evacuation, an alternate pickup site. There's going to need to be some sort of uh, feeding and sheltering operation, all because of something that was posted online. And the, the other finding from this is that there's no playbook for how a school official assesses an online threat. There's a broader concept for a threat assessment team that you know may meet weekly, may meet monthly, and they're yeah. gonna talk about people that they're worried about. And they're gonna kind of be going through the life history and all their pieces of information about you know the high level students that are on their radar as potential threats. But what they're not doing is is coming up with a game plan for what we're going to do right in this moment. And that's really a, a soft spot in school security planning um, and in this entire threat assessment process is that we haven't created any sort of system or playbook around the most common circumstance that's happening. And that's a social media threat during the school day that's likely a joke. Yeah, and I know, you know, to actually even if you have the information, you know, a lot of these calls are coming from overseas through voice over IP. It's really difficult to sort of trace where they're coming from. You can bounce them off of a bunch of different IPs. If you're smart about it, you can obfuscate it in many different ways. And a lot of schools, I mean, I think there probably isn't a district that was either not impacted by this over the last couple of years or wasn't affected just through an adjacent district, right? Like you have yeah. one school that gets impacted and then all the districts are like, crap, we have to pull the trigger on this. Cause if there's a shooting there, what if they come here? Um, and, and so it can paper, cause it's important to note. Yeah. It was written before the swatting uh, phenomenon last year. So with the amount of time that it takes to peer review an academic paper, right. you end up <laughs> writing it, you know, almost a year before it's finally published. But yeah, things changed dramatically last year um, where this phenomenon of serial swatting started. And for anyone that's not familiar with it, there were about 580 different schools last spring where somebody made a 911 call saying there is an active shooter in, in, at this school. There are people injured. Uh, there's simulated gunshots going yeah. off in the back of the 911 call. So creating a hyper-realistic scenario. And so of those more than 500 swattings, more than half of them happened on the same 12 days. Yeah. And on those 12 days, there were 20, 30, even 40 schools in the same state that were all hit with a robo-dialer making 911 calls simultaneously. So they these were maxed out, you know, all available resources in these states and created, you know, a, a huge amount of confusion and then really dangerous situations because when it, when a patrol officer is responding, 
and they're hearing over the radio these updates that now there are multiple shooters, they're yeah. throwing grenades, you know, there, there are 30 people hit in this classroom. Those officers are at their highest level of intensity and adrenaline. Yeah. And in two cases, even though there was not a single person at the school that even knew that the th threat had been called in, two different officers as they rushed into the schools accidentally discharged their weapons. Yeah. Um, and in a third case, the first officer to arrive at the school couldn't get through the locked door, so he crashed his police car into the into the lobby of the building. So all three of those were potentially deadly scenarios when not a single person at the school even knew that a threat had been made or this 911 call had been placed. That last point is really important because what I found, at least in sort of my network was the schools that had good communication, you know, it could be an SRO. Uh, it could be, they have a radio system that connects to the dispatch center. Uh, or it could just be, they have a good relationship with the dispatch center that thinks like, I'm going to call the school back and make sure that there's something there. Uh, there was no response. So the, the school that my wife and kids go to, we got, we were part of this. And actually it's why I got involved with the school district to help them. Uh, they got the phone call. And it was quickly communicated with the police department. They showed up, did face to face just to be sure. They're like, this is, we're pretty sure it's a hoax. We just saw all the 911 lines light up. You know, this is, it's not necessarily a realistic, you know, there's sounds, there's voices and stuff, but they're like, something didn't add up. Good dispatchers realizing they have the ability to sort of slow this down. Other school districts, maybe they didn't have that level of communication. Like you're saying, it was an all out response. Everyone was showing up. And, uh, you know, you can have situations where you've got unmarked federal officers, right? You got the the uh, undercover DE agents who are bearded and with rifles running in tons of confusion. Uh, and had there been a relationship or a process to immediately verify this reality, um, you could have prevented the accidental discharge, the, you know, and, and I can only imagine, like I was, I was a cop for a little period of time and you get tunnel vision. You just, you can't even think or see you have, you're looking through a straw. Um, but that just that slight delay in, in confirming this information could prevent tragedy when there's nothing else actually happening. Um, and then yeah, how do we, it's, it's not exclusive to K through 12 schools. I sure, mean, that yeah. was very much the case, um, at Michigan state university right. when there yeah. was the shooting on campus. And that was a, a very fortunate situation in that the shooter had, uh, like a dozen loaded magazines that he never even used, but you had somebody walk into one building, shoot some students there, yeah. walk into another building, shoot some students and then leave campus. Yeah. all within about an eight-minute period of time. And the incident it, it ran on for at, hours. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it happened at 9 p.m. Yeah. So the campus then was on lockdown for about five and a half hours, and police received more than 1,500 different yeah. 911 calls with descriptions, not just 911 that something is happening, 1,500 different descriptions of the shooter. And that was because it's at nine at night, there's so many off-duty officers that yeah. are responding. They're in unmarked cars. Yep. Um, as they're opening doors, you're hearing a bang sound. Uh, you might see some people running. And a lack of situational awareness on the campus turned something that was was a terrible tragedy. I mean, it yeah. was a really bad situation for yeah. students to be shot in a classroom and, and shot in the commons. But it became an emergency for every one of the 60,000 students on campus. Yeah when the emergency notification system wasn't able to send them um, tailored information, they didn't know who or where the shooter was, and it took hours to piece together what happened. Yeah, it was, uh, I, I listened to basically that entire thing anytime one of these events, just to try to learn as much as I can, unpack it. I actually saved all the radio audio on that because A, the dispatcher, I mean, she was underwater. She ran that incident. It was really, really impressive. Uh, and she was struggling because exactly how do you track this down? How do you monitor where the actual person is when you hear a bang? I know there was a there was an incident in one of the UC systems. It was a person who committed suicide. 
they instituted a, a lockdown, a full response from police. The doors were secured. They didn't have access. You know, they couldn't get to the, they didn't have a card. They didn't have the keys, whatever. They start breaching doors. Every time a door was breached, new 911 calls were coming in because the shotgun, you know, that audio is just reverberating and propagating through the entire campus. They're getting tons more. Sh- okay, we got shots in this building now. And they're like, oh, gosh, all right, now we go to this building. Doors are locked again. We have to get in. Boom, you know, and then it's happening again. And it just continues and continues. And, and one of the things that I as I was listening to the incident, I was like, I was like, they just cleared this building. And now they're going back to re-clear it. I'm like, what? How is this not like, are they securing it? And, and I'm not trying to Monday morning quarterback this because obviously I was not there. But, um, you know, just you're chasing ghosts and it's prolonging the trauma. It's potentially delaying, you know, treatment. Right. Like our new model is you take out the threat first and then you get to the victims. And if you don't know where the threat is and you're trying to track that down, you could be delaying treatment of people who are potentially bleeding out, you know, right there. Um, But if nothing else, you're just creating this, you're making this situation bigger and bigger and bigger. And so maybe this is a good time to talk about zero eyes and sort of your approach to maybe mitigating this, uh, as well as providing, I think, the thing that I is I'm obsessed with AI, like especially for emergency management, just augmenting our ability, uh, you know, putting on that that digital exoskeleton to help us be better at our job. And I am really, really interested in how Zero Eyes works. And I think a lot of emergency managers have probably seen your stuff. So maybe just tell us how you're trying to mitigate some of these uh, issues. Yeah. Um, so before, so I joined Zero Eyes uh, this summer, you know, in, in August. Um, and before that, it was really this spring where for the, the first five years that I was collecting the school shooting data, I said that I just want to be the data collector. Yeah. And I'm going to give the information to the people that can create policy, can create plans, can test products, whatever else. I want to be the data collector. But the feelings really kind of changed for me, um, you know, in the in the spring semester, you know, the the winter and uh, spring of last year, because first the serial swatting incidents were yeah. occurring, and I'm seeing that in real time, and I'm seeing the number of incidents, and realizing that these are, this is such a severe problem because we don't have any situational awareness. Yeah, we can't tell what's going on, and if we don't know what's going on, then people default to let's do an all hands response, and then we'll we'll clean up the pieces later, and then the, the second. Um, piece that like really, really impacted me was the Covenant school shooting in Nashville and watching the video, uh, especially the surveillance video from the parking lot and knowing that there was a period of time, um, in my estimation, it, it was about 60 to 90 seconds between when the shooter got out of the car in the parking lot and the shooter got to the first victim. And that's a, a really uh, prestigious private school in Nashville, very well funded. From looking at those images, you could tell that there's high resolution, really yeah. well-maintained video cameras around the entire interior and exterior of the campus, that there's got to be something we can do um, to mitigate these incidents. And that that brought me to um, connecting with some folks at Zero Eyes. And, and this company is, is different from just about any other vendor in the school security space. So the, the original founders were some Navy SEALs that wanted to do something after Parkland and got the idea that if you have software that you can install on people's existing cameras and that software can detect a weapon, that based on that weapons detection, you can immediately alert 911 and alert the people in that facility. And that that's gonna save those couple seconds that would give you time to get away, get police rolling that much faster. Um, and that what we need to do is we spend a lot of time focused on after the first shot, but there's a period of time that we weren't doing anything about, about before the first shot. Yeah. And it, anytime you shorten those time periods, uh, that's an opportunity to save lives. So looking at, at those two different phenomenons from the spring, these, the serial swatting, I realized that if a school has AI gun detection technology like Zero Eyes, you get a single 911 call describing yeah. this World War III school shooting scenario. And if you look at your detections and there's not a single weapon 
detected anywhere on campus. And there's only one 911 call. Yeah. Where when there's a major emergency, there are Everyone's calling. Yeah. <laughs> there are hundreds. Yeah. You would now have two different pieces of information to say, maybe this is something we can scale down. Yeah. And that, that I think knowing where a gun is, but knowing where a gun isn't, because if you have a worst case scenario school shooting, there's going to be a gun visible somewhere. Yeah. Probably lots of places. Yeah. That those were almost 600 swatting incidents that all could have been scaled back to one car going out. Just doing the face to face. call yeah. to the yeah. principal. And nobody needs to get traumatized. Nobody needs to disrupt classes. The students and teachers would never even know that that 911 call happened. Yeah. And that's, I think, one of the powers of the technology. The other there, you know, in, in Nashville, and it, it's my own speculation on this, but gun detection outside of the school probably could have gotten everybody behind a locked door before the shooter made it inside. Yeah. And from listening to the 911 tapes from that call, there was a lot of confusion um, between the name and address of that school versus the yeah. church um, versus, you know, another place. It sounds like the dispatcher may have been spelling the name wrong, so it wasn't, you know, coming up immediately. There was, you know, almost two minutes of kind of confusion that could have been cut out. So, which you is know, very common, right? I mean, yeah. you're especially someone who's calling nine one one without, you know, even if you're totally familiar with your location, if you're not used to a high stress environment, who knows what you're going to say? You're going to probably see whatever street sign you see. So that's very common. So, yeah, taking that out of the equation, you know, letting computers that are watching you know, forever, uh, and have no stress, uh, just it's immediately effective. Um, and then it's important to note too, that it's it, why this software or why this, why zero eyes is different, um, is that it's the AI detection, but the AI detection goes to a 24 seven operations center. Yeah. There's a room full of people, right. That are confirming that. Yeah. Yeah. Combat vets working 24 seven and every detection that they get is going to be human verified before it goes out to the end user. So there will not be any false positives because there are human eyes yeah. seeing that there's a gun. And then there's also a selection process then to say, this is a critical alert. We're going to send it out to the 911 center and all the pre-designated contacts. But there's also a second tier where this looks like kids with a toy you know, at this school on the weekend what we're going to do is go through a, a, a more scaled back notification process because we don't need a bunch of officers racing to that school and potentially accidentally shooting somebody with a toy gun. Yeah. Um, so, so you get all of these different layers once you put the human component in there. And I think that's what's standard now in AI um, across tools that are helping people with writing news reporting, medicine, imaging, all of this is that the AI can't do it perfectly on its own. Right. They, now, the AI can do way more than one person can do. <laughs> yeah. And if you have the AI do a ton of work, a human with a small amount of effort can sort out what's good and bad from it. And so the two together, combining AI technology with the human, uh, you know, it is really a powerful solution to a lot of problems and just beyond gun detection. I, I mean, it's showing up everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, really impressive. Uh, if you search for zero eyes, there's a bunch of videos that sort of show the process. Uh, I know you guys have been getting a lot of really good, you know, uh, feedback from, you know, schools and stuff that you work with. There's been a lot of news, uh, reports on it. So, uh, it's really interesting. I really like the trust but verify method as well. I've used uh, as an emergency manager numerous, you know, AI social media scraping tools and email scraping tools and stuff for threats. And there's just so much junk that comes out of there that you just don't realize. Uh, you know, we had a, a social media system that used to search all the you know social media feeds within um, our jurisdiction, and there was a uh, radio station that would send out their songs over 
you know, Twitter and we would pull from the API and <laughs> sure enough, like at least once a week, we're getting a notification about like shots or gun or whatever. And then you look and it's like, Oh, it's a song name. Um, you know, again, if it was just a, a dumb system that was pulling this and alerting lockdown, we got, you know, shots reported on this campus versus like that human factor, just trust, but verify, make sure it's, it's real. It's really interesting. Um, I guess like there's, there's kind of another situational awareness piece that goes back to kind of the, the original findings with the school shooting database is that right now there's one plan at schools and that's, that's your intruder, heavily armed intruder coming in, trying to get into the classrooms and shoot as many students as possible. Yeah. But the most common situation at a school is that there are more teenagers carrying guns than there were in the past. Yeah. And when a fight occurs between students, somebody's pulling a gun, firing some shots. They're usually in a hallway um, beside the building in the cafeteria in common areas. And then it's a very isolated incident because the per- the people involved with the fight were shot at and the person who was the shooter does not want to wait around for police. Yeah. So they flee immediately. Yeah. If you have a gun detection, uh, software system and you get an alert and you see from the images there that there was a fight, this gun was pulled during the fight and you see the shooter running. What you don't need to do is have everybody hide in closets for the next four hours. Yeah. So what you're getting is this situational awareness that can start informing you about what's happening. And from there, you know, which plan to implement. So you're, Shooting during a fight plan should be different from the suicide plan, different from the accident plan, different from the parent um, who's coming in targeting, you know, the ex-wife who works at the school. Yeah. Those plans are all different from an indiscriminate shooter. And if you have tools that are able to give you that situational awareness, then you can start tailoring your response immediately. Yeah. And and that's what right now, part of the reason there's this one size fits all strategy is because people don't have any information. Yeah. Police don't have any information. The school doesn't have any information. So we're going to throw everything possible at this problem and then we'll sort it out later. Right. You got to build a picture. In reality, we're creating a much worse problem. And so there was um, a shooting at an elementary school last year where a kid had brought a gun in and he was showing it off in the bathroom and he fired one shot in the bathroom and the kids dropped the gun immediately ran and ran back to their classrooms and the SRO was right there. So he heard the shot. He ran into the bathroom, saw the bullet hole in the tile and saw the gun laying there, but the lockdown process had already started. Yeah. And the school locked down for seven hours after that, during which Kids were going to the bathroom in trash cans. Yeah. Um, kids were writing goodbye letters oh to their God. family yeah. members, giving away their possessions. So for seven hours, kids thought that they were going to die and then had to do really the most embarrassing, dehumanizing things possible in front of their classmates, all because there's no situational awareness and there's no plan for anything other than a mass attack. Yeah. I think that is a perfect bow to tie up this conversation Um, where I guess maybe one closing thought, like what should emergency managers, what should responders like, what's a good first step to sort of take advantage of, you know, your database or your software, uh, your, your AI detection, where should they start? Yeah, there's a ton of information on k12ssdb.org. It's the K-12 school shooting database. I also uh, tweet updates on incidents that happen every single day. Uh, if there are critical incidents as they're happening, it's at k12ssdb. And if you search for Zero Eyes, uh, there are a number of different long-form news articles recently that really go in depth into the software. But in terms of emergency management, I think what is lacking in schools right now is the involvement from the emergency management community because everybody assumes that somebody else is responsible for the plans or for the training or for the exercises. And emergency managers need to be assertive about being at the table, about 
convening schools, police, fire, EMS, community groups around what do we do for lots of different scenarios? Because multi-scenario planning isn't happening. Yeah. Community involvement isn't happening. And really things beyond just the response phase aren't happening because it's it's a worst case scenario, but there, there's gonna be a school shooting at some point in really inclement weather. Yeah. And as people are running away and leaving, you now have sheltering, you have a, a large probably first aid and EMS response to the people who've now been out in the elements yeah. for hours. Um, you may have a, a prolonged feeding and sheltering thing because you want to keep as many students and witnesses um, in separate locations for until they can all be interviewed. And that is emergency management's bread and butter, Yeah, is thinking holistically about everything that needs to go into an effective response and transitioning that response into recovery. And that's the other piece that's missing. Schools have one plan for a shooting when they need a bunch. Very few schools have any sort of recovery plan for what do we need to do four hours after, the next day after, the next week after. And rather than people, everyone in that community is gonna be having their worst week ever. They shouldn't also be figuring out their emergency management plan and how to get through that whole life cycle um, during that acutely traumatic period. And I think it's just a matter of emergency managers need to bring other people to the table and decide that this is a whole community problem that we need to look at from multiple different angles as a much broader issue than it's currently getting attention as. Yeah, that's I it's the best advice you could possibly give. Just just get involved and and you know, uh, uh, David, I like cannot thank you enough. This has been uh super informative i i'm a huge fan of yours i will continue to bug you and tap into your stuff on linkedin um i'll share all of your resources uh in the show notes um you know thank you for what you do it's really 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 important this database has been hugely valuable to me so as an emergency manager as a parent as a spouse of a teacher this stuff is so important and you are making me a better emergency manager um, I'm really excited for Zero Eyes to, to see how that starts to impact and mitigate this because prevention is always better than response. Having that window of time before they get into the building is huge. Um, so I really appreciate it. I appreciate everything you do. And thank you so much for being on the episode. Absolutely. Thank you for having me.